being able to see when something is the right fit and having the skill to not only recognize it, but then enact the right treatment is key. And the less we know, the easier it is to be convinced we're right. Hi, I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. A podcasting pal of mine says that when you begin a podcast, you got two things, your integrity and no audience. And really, when you think about it, starting an acupuncture practice, any business for that matter, you start with the same situation. You've got your integrity, which includes some kind of vision for what you want to share, and no audience. We start from nothing. It's kind of a Taoist thing when you think about it, right? Dao sheng yi, yi sheng er, er sheng san, san sheng wan wu. The Tao gives rise to the one, creates the two, that produces the three, that gives us the 10,000 things. In our modern world, we're constantly striving to get something. We do this in order to get that. We struggle, we strive, plan and plot, and then the world just shows up as it does. It's one of those chewy paradoxes that I find myself constantly tripping over. I find this showing up in my clinical work as well. I'm trying to, air quotes here, do something to help my patients, often without all the information that I really need. And sometimes that's because they don't tell me, but more often it's because I'm too busy thinking or planning to really listen. Spending a little more time with the nothing. Pausing for a moment to feel for the clarity before the mind settles in on the story that becomes the treatment plan. Spending a moment in that liminal space between knowing and not knowing It's one of the most challenging parts of my day. We need to know to do our work. And it's helpful if we're also familiar with our own process of going from not knowing into knowing. In today's conversation, we get into knowing the levels of which herbs treat what condition. And perhaps become aware of the biases we carry concerning the upper, middle, and lower classes of herbs. I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation with Andrew Nugent Head as much as I did. It really illuminates the deep sense of observation that comes from being attentive to the transformations of yin and yang and how that can help us to focus our treatment. We'll get into that here in just a moment, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Barry Thorne, president at Golden Needle, and we're delighted to have been a part of Geological since its very beginning. We love to support and help bring you Geological because the conversations are unrivaled. Where else can you listen to seasoned professionals deeply engaged in discussions aimed at illuminating areas of theory and practice of import to all practitioners of Chinese medicine? At Golden Needle, we know that medicine is a lifelong learning endeavor. We think the conversations here serve the acupuncture and East Asian medicine community by providing a forum for the free exchange of ideas, theory, and practice. We're dedicated to serving the practitioners who treat their patients with natural methods. Supporting Geological is one of the ways that we help to serve the Chinese medicine community and their patients. We're here to support you in your practice by stocking a wide inventory of essentials you need for your clinic at fair prices. In addition, our website offers a vast amount of information. For instance, check out the Formula Finder, where we have categorized our products according to the format of Binsky and Gamble's formulas and strategies. Here at Golden Needle, we not only supply you with tools for your clinic, but also nourishment for your mind. We hope that our support of these conversations will help to serve and inspire our community of acupuncturists 
and we are happy to be a part of creating this expanding library of discussions that we can all tap into when we need access to new ideas. Please enjoy today's conversation. Hey folks, welcome back to Geological. I'm delighted to sit down with a guest who 10 years ago I sat down for over tea in Beijing, and now today we're sitting down over tea across the internet. I've got Andrew Nugent Head with me. He and his wife have created the Association for Traditional Studies. He teaches medicine that he was exposed to over his long tenure in Taiwan and China. And in particular, he's had an opportunity to study with a number of the Lao Zhongyi, the old doctors. And so he has had the opportunity to drink from a number of different currents of medicine. There's a bunch of information over on his website that, well, you'll find the link to it over on the show notes page, along with other pertinent information from our conversation. Today, we're sitting down for a discussion about herbs and perhaps a few other topics as well, depending on how the time goes. But in particular, we're going to get into this idea of shang zhong sha, the upper, the middle, and the lower class herbs. You know, so often we think we should be doing the upper level work. But the thing about our medicine, it really tells us that we should be working where we need to be working. And so we're going to get into a discussion here about herbs, in particular, the lower class. Andrew, good to see you, man. Welcome to Geological. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back with you and first time here on Geological. So, you know, our medicine is, it comes from another place in another time in another language. And I think sometimes we get tripped up with the language piece. And I want to get into this thing about the different classes of herbs. Well, that's a great topic. As you know, when we originally talked about this, we had this other topic that we may never get to today. But uh, just at that time, uh, my wife, Julianne, who, you know, we've, the two of us have been, you know, unfairly pigeonholed. I'm supposed to be the acupuncturist body worker and she's supposed to be the herbalist. And of course, she's a fantastic practitioner of physical medicine. And I've been practicing herbs longer than anything else. But she was online in one of the chat groups and a, an exchange happened that we watched. And uh, it was so astounding to see what was being said and how non-inclusive or how, I don't know what the term is because you can't say it's sexist, racist, it's medicinalist. I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say, except that there was this idea that it could only be one thing and this is it. And the lack of understanding of the breadth of our medicine and the meanings of what it was coming from is huge. Uh, one of the things that we were talking before we started filming is this idea of this upper practice of medicine and that idea that this the superior practitioner treats no illness or when there is a non-illness. And the idea that we should be using these refined herbs, the herbs that lighten the body and help the spirit. And that's great, but that implies a misunderstanding that that is better because of shang, seeing mean to mean superior in English. And what I, for me, translation is a really, really, really big issue. Uh, I you know, I got to China, I got to Taiwan in 86. And by 88, I was doing a lot of translating for the Qigong practitioners, the Daoyan, as we say, the Daoyan practitioners and my Taiji practitioner and uh, Chinese medicine. And I was just 
translating like crazy, translating, interpreting live for classes. I was helping them produce manuals. I was helping them produce teaching materials. And then I decided after, I don't know how many years to spend six months studying the issue of translation. And I didn't translate again for 10 years. That shock of realizing that I was responsible for a huge amount of well-intended misinformation because of my misunderstanding of what translation can be. And I had so focused on one area of it. Regardless, when I talk about it, I talk about the shape of an hourglass. And an hourglass is wide at the top and it funnels into one small little spot and then it goes through the hourglass and then it funnels wide again on the other side. And when we pick a word like upper, shang, we put that right at that at that crux spot where it goes through the hourglass. And so above is Chinese, shang, and below is English, upper. And as we push it through, we say, okay, shang means upper. But what we're missing is the breadth of what shang means in Chinese in so many contexts and so many usages. And then once we pick a word in English, when we translate, we are so beholden to all of the extra meanings it has in English that we may attach to it and without even realizing. And we lose, we lose the other context that it might also have in Chinese. Dao ke dao, fei chang dao, ming ke ming, fei chang ming. Once we give it a name, we've lost every other possibility. So why I stopped translating is I kept realizing by giving something a name, I had lost the breadth around it. And then people would put their own breadth around it. And there's a wonderful book for anyone out there who is doing any translation or starting to work in that field. Please read uh, Language, Thought, and Reality by Benjamin Lee Worf. Oh, that's an old book. That's been around a long time. That's a classic. That is as classic as it gets. And in this field, if you can read that and a few other books that we can stick up in the liner notes uh, where it will really help people understand that there's no right or wrong except thinking we're right and heading off in a direction because we think everything else is wrong. Uh, all that to say, so we have this idea of upper and superior, the word in English. And in the Neijing, if we're talking about doctors, shang zhong xia, that's correct. We have an upper doctor, a middle doctor, and a lower doctor. And a lower doctor does not imply less skilled. Uh, we'll leave that alone. But what we really need to understand is that it also is talking about the sansai, or the three levels, shang zhong xiao, or tian di ren, heaven, earth, and the human. And when it comes to herbs, that's what we're really talking about, is not a hierarchy of superiority to inferiority, but to where it's affecting, what affects heaven, the spirit, a lightening of things, what affects the human deficiencies, cold, warmth, have we gotten weak, have we gotten too strong, are we having too much insomnia, are we too sleepy, whatever is going on, and then earth, that which is strong and powerful and comes from the earth. And there's absolutely no differentiation of better and worse when it comes to the shang zhong xia of herbs. So we're, we're really talking about location. There's not a value judgment, better, worse, top of your class, bottom of your class. We're, what, what we're really talking about here is where does the resonance fit? Exactly. And a tangibility. That mm. is, when we're working with the spirit enlightening the body, we're working in a very, in a way that has to get in and percolate without affecting too much the body. Otherwise, it would affect the body and not the spirit. 
And when we're treating an illness, we have to affect the body. And then if our herbs are too light, it doesn't actually treat the problem. And understanding that it's, it's, I, I always use the word level of intensity, but intensity in English again implies a superiority inferiority. And to shake that with translation is very hard. Um, but if we can just grasp that idea of upper, middle, lower is not better, and we shouldn't strive to use upper herbs. One of the great things, and I think that if people would have that context, but then if they would just read or listen to the translation of the Shang Hanlin preface, but Zhang Zhongjing's preface is, it just, it helps set the stage of helping erase a lot of the foolishness of we have as practitioners. Uh, he, it's, it's on our website it's, and it's available out there. You can find it in so many places, uh, but it's still not given. It's the most important part of the whole Shang Han Lun. But with that, we can really grasp, ah, I am fooling myself. I'm having desires. I am thinking something and it's not true. It's like that hourglass. It's an incorrect translation of my own self. And with that, we need to look at it because where it all got going was the comment led to a comment about using Shurgao. And the idea that Shurgao is somehow dangerous for us, or that Mahuang is somehow dangerous, or Fuza is now the fire school, or whatever they're calling themselves in English, that these people are doing special or very strong medicine, and how we should be using these light herbs, or amounts are too, too strong, really is a misunderstanding of medicine. Because what really got me going is I read this, and I thought, you're kidding. I can go to my local supermarket and I can go to aisle seven and my eight-year-old can buy extra strength Tylenol off the shelf, check out, go into the parking lot and eat the entire box if he wanted to. Now we're raising a smart eight-year-old, so he's not going to do that. But what people are missing is that's an over-counter of the medicine from aisle seven that anyone can buy. And if you flip over the box and read, taking more than four in a 24-hour period can cause liver failure. We accept that. It's on our shelf. We trust absolutely anybody to walk into a supermarket and buy something of that level of strength and intensity. And yet people are scared of Shurgao and they're making comments, oh, you shouldn't use this or you should do that. The idea that somehow Chinese medicine is so strong, it will damage the young of a child growing up. And yet we give them Tylenol, we give them aspirin, we give them NyQuil. Uh, the idea that Mahuang is a very dangerous substance, it could give someone a stroke, and yet people are carrying epinephrine pens, which is a thousand times stronger. And absolutely needed in the moment that it's needed. That's exactly it. And even more is pseudoephedrine, is a hundred times weaker than epinephrine. So you have Mahuang in its raw form, Mormon tea. I mean, the Mormons will drink it. It's, it's Brigham tea, it's Morgan tea. Uh, you have this herb and then there's an extract for it, which many people don't realize is in. So they say, I'd never prescribe Mahuang. So we have a Chinese medicine practitioner who would never use Mahuang and yet they have terrible allergies and they're using allergy medicine that has ephedrine in it. So I, you know, just the, I don't want to use the word, how do I, I'm trying so hard to be nice. Julianne made a sticker, said I had to be nice. Um, but is it, is it in front of you right now? Are you looking at the sticker? I'm looking at the sticker. I have a sticker and it says behave. 
but you know the 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 ignorance of people who are making comments about the herbs that are critical to this medicine should we choose to treat disease mm -hmm. and that those same substances are in products that they have take and people can buy over the counter and that there are substances that are life-saving like an EpiPen that you and I can stick an EpiPen in our thigh and go through the experience and not have a stroke and yet people are concerned about using mahuang. Now misuse of anything is a problem. Of course. Well, you know, this reminds me of an older conversation in a way, right? And it's the conversation between like the Wenbing school and the Shanghan school in a way, right? Because the Wenbing folks, you know, the Southerners, you know, hey, we're more delicate, things like Futsa Mahuang. It's, you know, we, we can't tolerate that stuff. We're more sensitive. Well, you know, it's true to a degree, but what a lot of people, I always like to point out with the Wenbing school is you have the school, you know, it's a little bit like the spleen school. So you've got Li Dongyuan in the spleen school. And mm. if you look at people who say, oh, I'm a spleen school person, and then you look at their formulas, they don't look anything like Li Dongyuan's formulas. Li Dongyuan did not use a lot of fooling. He uses a lot of aromatic and light. Uh, when you look at his herbs, it doesn't match our current thinking of every person needs a jinzatang. <laughs> and with the one Bing school, it's the same thing where we miss that if we open up the one Bing Tiaobian, many of the formulas are all Shanghanlin formulas. In fact, very beginning, you've got Guajutang in there, you've got Baihutang in there. And so the one Bing was not new formulas, it was hey, this is a whole new set of illnesses, and here are formulas that will work in these circumstances. They came from the Shanghai Lin, they came from the past, and here's some ones that we're adding because we need to clear some really toxic heat that he was not dealing with right now. But, you know, the, the issue, of course, is that idea. And then the one being, once you got past the, those epidemics that were going on, so you get to the later Qing, and then you get to the Republic of China, all of a sudden those one being formulas become you know, yin chao san and sang yin and all of these gentle ideas when that's not what the book is talking about. And today we have Shanghan Lun scholars, Shanghan Lun practitioners, and they're writing nine grams of guajir. And that's not what the Shanghan Lun was talking about. I mean, it's 45 grams of guajir and 45 grams of mahuang when you get into the real dosages. So in which case we have what we think it means and therefore are practicing and what it really means. And that brings us right back to this upper, middle, and lower level of herbs. Because in the end, there's 365 herbs in the Shendong Banzhao. And that number is not because there only was. We have to realize that they were picking that because the Shu Shu or the love of math or calendar skills was very big at the time. And so we have to think, what herbs did they not pick for the, for the Shandong Banzhao? I mean, there was a huge amount of herbs being used. They picked these. And what people miss is that the category of herbs that has the most is the lower category. It's 120, 120, 125. And so if we were to look at it without an idea of English superiority, inferiority, we would say, gosh, that category has more herbs than the others. It must be more important. Well, sort of like the, the Shanghai Lun, right? What's the biggest chapter? It's the Guajir chapter. It is, and and it helps sum up such a breadth of treatments. Uh, you know what's so fantastic about that whole 
whole huge line in the Taiyang chapter of all the uses of Guajir is that it's Guajir, but in the meantime, don't miss that the illness has progressed. Now you need to use Baihu Tao. Now you can use Baihu with Renshin. Here it is, but hey, here's, here's Chaihu, and Chaihu shows up in the Taiyang chapter. That's where you have the huge run, not over in the Shaoyang chapter where everyone thinks they'll find it. And so that understanding of context and those lower herbs are the context of treating illness and disease. And if we miss that, if we don't understand that that's also a medicine, that if we stretch our medicine so that if we had a football field and everybody is operating from the field goal to the 20 yard line, we just need to turn on the lights and say, you know, from 20 to 50 is a whole other set of this field that no one's walking around in. And then from 50 to the other end zone is a whole other field. And it doesn't mean one area of the field's better than the other, but let's include because otherwise we end up with a whole lot of medicine being practiced that can't be called medicine because we can't tackle the big diseases. Maybe you can tackle a certain realm of it. I mean, this is a thing to me that's so fascinating about Chinese medicine, because we often talk about that we don't treat disease. Well, I mean, of course we're treating disease, because otherwise, why would people come to us, and why would we spend all this time studying? But there's this other aspect of it, where we're really looking at some principles, and we're trying to understand what is actually going on. Because if you just look at the disease and go, what herb or what formula treats, quote, headaches or, you know, stomach upset or, you know, what, whatever it is that someone came in with, we're going to miss that there are principles involved, which is why you can have the warm disease school using a bunch of Shanghai Lin formulas, because it's not about this formula is better or this formula is worse. It's about there's a process going on here, and we are trying to understand these changes between heaven, earth, and, and person. That's so well put. Uh, the, the biggest thing is that people join a school, and, and again, I'm, going to, I've, I'm looking at that note saying behave, and I'm about to misbehave, but I've really come to believe- Down ball, down. Exactly, you know, muskrat, muskrat. <laughs> uh, I've really come to believe that people join a school wittingly or unwittingly so they can do less work, so they can study less, work less hard, and just follow something somebody else has done. Because- Every school was created by people who were reading all of the books and sweating through everything and were reading the Neijing and the Nanjing and the Shanghan and now what's called the Jingkui and going through Sun Simiao and going through the Wai Tai and if, depending where they were in the time period, sweating their way through every commentary and saying, gosh, here is something I'm seeing and I need to write about this. And then people come along and they just read that person's writing and they say, I'm just going to follow that and don't bother seeing that that person was saying only in context. Uh, and that idea of, as you said, trying to get wrap our head around what we're seeing right now, if it's different from the past. And, um, you know, what I always try and point out is that we think they're different thinkings. But when we talk about yin and yang, People miss the fact that if we were going to put it into English, we must understand yin and yang are not nouns. And that has killed us in English translation. Yin and yang are adjectives. And if we look at the actual pictographic character, it's yin is the shady side of a mountain and yang is the sunny side of a mountain. That's what pictographically we're looking at. We're looking at a mound and the sun, or we're looking at a mound and the shade. So when we talk about yin and yang, we must realize that we're not talking about yin and yang, we're talking about the mountain. 
And then the adjective is the sunny side of the mountain or the shady side of the mountain, but they're adjectives for an object. They are themselves are not nouns. Well, there's something else that just came to my mind. Let me just toss this out. Because when you first said yin and yang are not nouns, I went, you're right. Holy smokes. They're verbs. <laughs> well, I guess people will end up writing in and with, with examples of them being nouns, adjective, herbs. And, you know, I think that that's the whole point is that we can't get stuck in that hourglass of poking it through into one meaning. Well, even, even more than that, there's this pluralistic view. You can look at it as a noun, and that will open up a certain aspect of reality. It will give you a particular perspective that you'll be able to work within and you'll be blind to everything else. Likewise, you can look at it as an adjective. That will open a different perspective. If you view it as a noun, you're looking at something else. I don't think any of them is more right or wrong. They're, they're going to give you a different lens to understand and you're going to see different things as a result. And that's huge. And that's why lately my rants, you know, I, I've been teaching so much that there's a, a group of people that uh, I chat with that are, if something comes up, I will email with them or they'll email with me because they've been through all the programs. We have a common language, which I feel is so important when I'm working with people for a long time is that I know we have a common language. And if we can just reach a place where we understand that inclusivity is what's important, it's not that this is better than that. We just have to widen, spread, and include. So uh, I include treatments where people put in needles and leave the patient alone for 20 minutes with nothing to do. And I include working on someone in a way that would be construed as extreme dry needling. And I work in a way of what might look like Reiki. And I work in a way of what looks like good old fashioned Twena. And it's the idea that there's not one or the other. It's just breadth. And being able to see when something is the right fit. And having the skill to not only recognize it, but then enact the right treatment is key. And uh, the less we know, the easier it is to be convinced we're right. You know, that can be such a big problem is that we want to be more right than helpful. Yes. And, you know, we, I mean, I was in China for 28 years and I never thought I was returning and with the three children and the visa laws making it harder and harder and the international schools reaching an incredible cost where it was cheaper for me to, for us to move back to the States and for me to fly 10 trips a year to Beijing than it was for us to stay where we were living in the mountains and outside of Hangzhou. That idea of, of isolation being over there and in it was great and we had no idea what was happening here. And then suddenly we're here and we think, okay, all right, Facebook. It's banned in China and, you know, our internet's so bad that we couldn't use a VPN. So who knows? Now, all of a sudden, we have access to these chat groups and people are saying, oh, my child, my one-year-old has pneumonia. What do you suggest? And everybody's pouring in all these suggestions and thinking, that's kind of crazy. You don't know what other symptoms they have. Or someone saying, oh, patient came in with this. The tongue and the, the pulse is this. And then there's 30 million suggestions come in for formulas without any breadth of slowing down. That there seems to be this idea that that's a linear line. Oh, this pulse is this illness. This is the herb for this. And when we're really wrestling in the clinic with patients who can die, who are dying, who have acute illness, and I, I was lucky. When I got to China, I was in Taiwan in 86 and I got to Beijing in 87. And it is important to know that 
in the 80s, most people were still drunk at 11 in the morning. Salaries were incredibly low. People were smoking in the hospitals and the doctors were drunk before lunch. Lunch was at 1030 in the morning. It's really hard for people to understand what it was like in those days. So restaurants opened at 1030 in the morning for lunch and most people had lined up at 1040 and they were drunk. And so nobody would go to a hospital for anything serious unless they really had a connection and could guarantee that the doctor or the surgeon was going to be sober. And a lot of people now will say, oh, that's not true. I'm sorry. I was there. I was in the hospitals. I was shocked at what I was seeing in terms of the irresponsibility once you got out of the special clinic for the cadres and into the people's clinics. And when that's a reality and you have an illness, you find those last doctors who were born and educated prior to 1949, back when they were really dealing with life and death illnesses, who knew how to set bones, who knew how to deal with uh, very serious life or death diseases, and formulas were written for the day or two, and that's it. And I was with them, and people were flocking to see them because they were scared to go to the hospital. And it's interesting, what has a front has a back, and what has a back has a front. And the Cultural Revolution just wiped the heck out of these old practitioners so that when I got there, it was like being in a desert with a couple of palm trees in occasional places. But what people miss is when there's only one little oasis for a thousand miles, everybody goes to that oasis. And so even though I did not have the breadth of doctors available to me by 1987 that people would have had prior to the Cultural Revolution, or even 1979 when David Eisenberg got there, uh, but when I got to that oasis and I found that one of the last living doctors who could do this medicine, they had patients that were unbelievable. I mean, my first day with Dr. Shea was a young, uh, young man, he's about 21 from the countryside, who had stuck his hand in a corn husker. And it had been chewed, so he'd lost four of his fingers and part of his hand. And this is, this is already the 90s, so it's better, but still terrible. And he uh, was told they were going to amputate at the elbow or maybe the shoulder because they were afraid of a bone marrow infection. Now, he's from the countryside. He has no education. In his village, if he is an amputee, most likely his child will be born without an arm. Uh, there is that level of superstition along with a huge level of knowledge in the countryside, especially in those days. And so he wasn't going to get his arm chopped off. Next thing you know, my first day with Dr. Shea in terms of being his medical student was having to unwrap the bandages, examine the wound, put the medicines on it, and track this patient. And that was day one. And when that's your exposure to this medicine, my own, my own exposure is, you know, if you read enough of it, you'll see that I had a motorcycle accident and I broke the bones in my foot and they were set with Chinese medicine. It was the most painful experience I ever had, but I was walking two weeks later. And that understanding that this medicine has an acuteness to it and a speed to it, and it's not polite or pretty. You know, the best thing about having a person like a, the foreigner who's all excited to be your intern when you're an old doctor is you have someone who's happy to wipe the poop out of the old guy's pants. And, you know, when you're cleaning bedpans for a doctor and you're helping set a coccyx by sticking your finger in someone's rectum before we understood gloves were a good idea way back when, uh, it, it's, it's really hard to get excited about upper herbs being like a superior medicine when really the person had a broken coccyx and you had to slide your finger in there and set the coccyx with your finger on the inside and outside. 
and and when that was my exposure, I had no idea that there was this mm, againstness of a medicine being practiced to that level of strength. And it's been shocking to be told that what we do isn't Chinese medicine or the martial arts I practice isn't real martial arts, not Chinese martial arts because it looks different. And it's like, ah, help. You know, that, that that's just widen your belief and accept me. I accept you. We all accept each other and realize there's a breadth here that all should be welcome. And no one should be told that's not right, especially when we don't have any experience in that realm. Hey, friends, we're going to take a quick break here because I want to remind you that while support of the sponsors here on Geological is an important part of what keeps this podcast coming to you each and every week, your help is also vastly appreciated. And it helps to free up the time and space for me to bring you these conversations. So if you feel so inclined, I'd love to have your support. You can help keep the teacup filled with inspiration by heading over to the Geological website and clicking on the button that will take you to the Patreon page. Patreon is a service that not only allows you to help support the show, but it allows me to give contributing subscribers some extra content, such as pre-releases of conversations that I'm sure that you're going to enjoy, part two interviews, and recently, some conversations with guest interviewers. You can catch Njamile Carol Jones having a conversation with Lorraine Wilcox. Love the podcast? Hey, visit the Patreon page and help to make it happen. All right, enough of that for now. Let's get back to the rest of today's conversation. We don't see people who put their hand in a corn husker because they're not coming to us. I think any of us that are practicing here in the West we're not going to see these things. Number one, we don't have any training. Number two, if someone came in with their with their hand mangled, you know, I mean, we we'd call nine one one, right? That's that's the uh, that's the thing we do. So we we don't have any experience with that. I was recently talking with a fellow who I'm, who I'll have on the show here in the near future, Eric uh, Karshner, and he's been writing some really interesting stuff. He's Are you familiar with him? He's actually spent a lot of time in Beijing. Not yet. I'm looking forward to tracking him down. Yeah, there's there's an article I can share with you where he was talking about how Chinese medicine became the slow medicine. Because before, and he talked a lot about Republican-era China, Chinese medicine is where you went if there was a problem. Because guess what? Western medicine wasn't going to help you. And there were lots of Chinese docs in the Republican era that were treating epidemic issues, they were treating the, the kinds of things that you're talking about. The medicine that we practice, that really none of, well, I mean, you've had some exposure, but most of us have not had exposure to working in that realm because the doctors aren't there these days. And so we say the medicine's not capable of working like this, but it really just might be that we're not capable of working that way because we don't have the training. Yes. And, and that's what, when I was ranting about it, as I just said, you know, understand that I understand that this level, this style of medicine is not currently that available in, let's say the United States. Uh, it's not quite true across the board, but let's just say that even if we could practice it without seeing it done, we wouldn't really know what to do. And, you know, it's fair, but it doesn't mean that we should say we shouldn't, that it doesn't exist or that's wrong. And more importantly, when I teach, 
because of this, I've, I've really tried to become Mr. Tangible in the last six or seven years and trying to make this a very clinical medicine. And uh, I say to them, I'm going to teach you things you're not going to be able to use in your practice, but I just want you to understand if you are hiking with your family and you are three days into the woods and one of them breaks a bone or one of them starts hallucinating because they ate something that got into their food, then do you know what to do? And you may never have seen it done, but I am going to teach you what to do should you be there. And all we have to do is end up in a Native American reservation where there's very little access to medicine. And there's an audience there who's very happy for you to practice a different level of medicine. And all we have to do is spend enough time with people who are outside the insurance system. And as long as it fits in your scope of practice, in the state you are in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, CYA, there's a lot of people who can take a level of acute medicine because they can't get any other medicine or they would be bankrupt. And the system has created opportunities for people to practice a much stronger level of medicine should they desire. And most of the people coming into Chinese medicine these days are not looking for that level of practice. Uh, what I went on the rant was, I understand that. I respect that. I am thrilled because there's a lot of patients that I can't or I'm not going to be able to see that need a level of medicine I'm not interested in practicing right now. I'm very interested in demonstrating a tangibility of acuteness, of treatment of very serious illness. I'm going to fail the patient who needs that more um, spiritual or, if we use upper incorrectly in the way it's currently being used, upper practice. When you say upper, you're not saying that it's better. You're saying it's lighter. You know, if we're looking at like Jing Chi Shun, exactly. for example, then, then we're talking about a more Shun level than a Qi level or a Jing level. You got it. And I 100% want people to know that I do not think what I do is better or Julianne does not think she what is doing is better. We just don't want to be ostracized for practicing a breadth of medicine other people are unfamiliar with and have never seen. I'd like to hear a little bit more about some of the things that we are capable of treating that we might not even know that we can treat. My goodness. Uh, what is it that I heard someone say is, uh, I'm chief many words from the long-winded tribe. So you're going to have to be careful on that one. Uh, I have a lot to say on the topic. And uh, I have actually spent most of the last years teaching in Europe uh, because over there, for the majority of countries, you have to be an MD. And now these are MDs who've been in a hospital, seen people die, and are dealing with a level of illness that most people who practice over here have never even seen, uh, let alone had to wrestle with. And then over there, the biggest difference between an MD practicing Chinese medicine and an MD here who gets into acupuncture is over there, they've let Western medicine go and they're doing Chinese medicine full-time because they believe in it, they like it, they're interested in it. Uh, whereas here, it's for different reasons, perhaps. And that allows me, when I'm over there, to have a discussion on treatment that I can't have in this country because over there, I'm talking to an MD. And the ability to handle incredibly acute pneumonia, the ability to handle broken bones without pins, uh, the ability to treat truly manic insanity behavior where you are having to tackle and chase someone down 
and hold them down without anesthetizing them and giving them a ton of lithium and putting them on drugs and hoping that in two or three years, whatever imbalance happened has done it by itself. You know, those are all areas of medicine that we are very good at, that extreme, and that, you know, Julianne and I have treated uh, that people don't get a chance to see over here or are not allowed to see, which is fair enough. I, I completely respect that there are some laws over here and we need to pay attention to that. And I completely understand that studying in China with the old doctors who did have the right to treat those diseases and treating migrant workers uh, who had access to nothing else, we saw a level of illness that's not possible in many places. Uh, but at the same time, just understanding that the medicine was designed for acute disease. It was for trauma. It was for influenza. It was for epidemics. I, if we're not careful, we're going to think that these incredibly wise, long-bearded people drinking tea were on a mountain and they put together yin and yang and five elements. And that's not it. Chinese medicine was born on the battlefield. When you look yeah, at it, in the trenches, in the trenches, it was warring states period. It was spring and autumn period. And people miss the fact that that was the size of those armies, 600,000 people moving across a land. Forget a battle, just 600,000 people moving across a land in winter, summer, winter, spring, you name it, cholera, dysentery, frostbite, violence, falling off a horse, you name it, all going on. And how do you keep these soldiers alive? How do you keep things moving forward? How do you stop them all from getting food poisoning because the food has not been refrigerated and it's been cooked for days or something has gone wrong? How do you stop people from eating bark because they're starving? How do you stop people from any of those things or how do you treat them when they have? And that's where this medicine really got going and they had this level of extremity and then they stopped and said, hey, here's some patterns because when you have hundreds of years of warfare and very smart people looking at it, you start seeing patterns. And then they were able to mm -hmm. extrapolate and then they were able to mix in these ideas and have the theory that now has become esoteric to us was so obvious when you were dealing with people of extreme illness. In the, I guess, what would it have been? Maybe the early 2000s, uh, I went through a period where I was organizing a lot of hospital programs in Beijing. And the reason behind that, and it, so typically us, is we were trying to organize programs where you could see how not to do the medicine. And so you have these old doctors who would lecture to these Westerners that I would translate, and it would go right over their heads because they hadn't seen 60 tongues and pulses a day. They hadn't seen these herbs or points thrown at a patient again and again, and not much change happened. And so we ran these programs in the hospitals with the best doctors we could find, of course, but they were able to then have this exposure of, oh, when I'm in my clinic and I say, oh, the tongue looks a little dusky or the tongue is black, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about nephritis when the tongue is pitch black or the fur on the tongue. That level of severity is what they were looking at in the old days. And they go, ah, tongue black. You know, they weren't hedging and hawing about like a grayscale field. They were talking about something very serious. And, you know, that's, I said, that's why I like teaching in Europe because all of the MDs there have seen all that and they just didn't understand a way of understanding the body to understand the mechanism behind it. One of the things that we face in our modern world is the coming end of the antibiotic error. And, and I've heard teachers that I've had say, you know, it, it, it's up to us and, and especially you younger folks 
to really learn our medicine and learn it well, because there's going to come a day when people have acute pneumonia and the antibiotics aren't going to help them. So, and I think anyone who's paying attention knows that we're sort of teetering on an edge here. And, and, and really, when that particular system of medicine no longer helps, we're going to be in a difficult spot. So talk to us a little bit about something as simple, seemingly simple, as, as treating an acute pneumonia. Well, I mean, it is so simple in the fact that all we really have to do is pick up the Shanghan Lun and we can go to Xiaoqing Longtang and or we can pick up the Bensky book and pick up and look up the Xiaoqing Longtang and realize that when they say three grams made a liang, that that was a mistake. And that's been acknowledged now and it just hasn't made it into popular culture. It's 15 grams per liang in the Shanghan Lun, 15.5 five, three something. And everybody now knows that who's paying any attention. But the problem is that so many people learned it at three that they're afraid to prescribe more than nine grams of guajer as opposed to 45. And Julianne in her online herbal training courses does such a wonderful job of elucidating that and then showing what the herbs look like in a formula when you fill it at three grams or at 15 grams a liang. And when you see what 75 grams of Banxia looks like. And when you see what 45 grams of Mahuang looks like, and when you see the fact that Xixin, poor, poor Xixin has gotten such a bad rap. Um, we're not even going to go into that one because that also sparked, I mean, that was on the internet and people were like, oh my goodness. And um, know which part of the plant is toxic. Know how long you're taking it for. And most importantly, remember that Tylenol will kill you if you take too much in a day. So let's not give Shishin a bad rap here when you're using it for one or two days to save life, right? So when you see what those dosages look like, and then you see the acuteness of pneumonia of someone whose lungs are so full of water, they can't breathe. They've got cyanosis. They, I mean, they are literally, you're watching someone die and they look like they're dying. That makes sense. You look at that quantity and that illness, and it matches. And when you fill it at the dosages that are in the current textbooks, and you look at what's in your bowl before you cook it, and then you look at the severity of the illness, it doesn't make sense. It's magic at that point. We are asking a great deal of very little. And if we take that and then we make it into tea pills, and the box, the bottle says, eight pills three times a day, and we look at acute pneumonia, we're going to kill our patient by not treating them correctly. And then if we go even further, I mean, we've gotten so far away from intensity. I, I keep a, a, um, a patent of cold snap in, uh, in my clinic, not for any other reason than the directions on the back. And I love those people, whoever they are, you have my thumbs up. I think you're the best thing in the world because the directions say, take three times, whatever it is, or forget everything you've ever been told and take a lot of this really frequently until you get better. And they're the first people to come out and say, hey, you're not going to get better on the dose on the label. And I mean, I just, I, I, I just, I practically cried with joy when I read that. And I said, finally, because you know, the more acute an illness is, the more we have to either be using lower herbs to circle us back to our original topic, 
Or Julianne is really, really good about stressing that we can use a middle herb or even an upper herb as a lower herb by changing dosage. So in Dushantang or in just the ginseng decoction, ginseng's an upper herb. But when you're saving a life, it's at 60 some grams. And that's 60 some grams of a ginseng in the old days that had some juju to it, not the stuff that we have today. And so the ability to take an upper herb and use it as a lower herb and a lower herb to use it as a middle or upper herb, and then realize that there's, there's just a level of intensity of how the body's going to cathartically respond to these things. And that's really what defines the usage. And, uh, you know, the best thing about having practiced most of my medicine in China is that you didn't have the same fetters that are over here. And with that, you did see, I mean, people are so scared of Shergao and, and, and that's simply because they've never seen it. And, you know, Dr. Li Hongxiang, whom I spent the last six years with before in the clinic, that was the last person I spent six years with in a clinic, he would routinely use 90, 120, 250 grams of Shergao. And he would use it for long periods of time. And none of the, and he was using it to treat what? Oh, um, his absolute favorite use for that amount of Shergao was for teenagers or people in their early 20s who had gotten sick and their parents had decided they were deficient and had so loaded them up with tonifiers that their pores had become sealed and they had so much trapped heat that with any exercise going up or down stairs, they would suddenly become exhausted and have heart palpitations, which would then be seen as, oh, look, they can't get up a flight of stairs and their heart's beating very wildly. They don't have, they don't have enough chi. I know. Let's get more exotic herbs. You got it. Huang chi. Then you got to boil up some poor turtles. And then you got to do, I mean, the, and you know, and the problem with sudden wealth in any country is that we would have these people coming from various parts of southern China with so much money from the factories because of Walmart and Target and everything else. And these poor kids, you had this 17-year-old covered in acne, exhausted, and it was because he had so much trapped heat inside his body. It's also critical if someone is dealing with lupus that's flaring hot or fibromyalgia that's flaring hot as opposed to cold. And honestly, the treatment of autoimmune diseases flaring hot is, it's very easy to treat. We treat it all the time in our clinic with Shergao and Han Shui Shur and understanding that the level of severity has to be matched by dose. And for cold patients, when it ma manifests as cold, then you have to understand how to use Fuzi and you have to know when to use Zhe Fuzi versus Sheng Fuzi. And you have to know how to use Ma Huang if you have access to Ma Huang, if it's legal for you. And once you understand that, a lot of these diseases that seem recalcitrant are really easy to treat. And one of the nice things about being, we're in Asheville, North Carolina, and it's a small town, so everybody knows everybody very quickly, but it's a liberal town, so everybody's willing to accept a lot that may not be acceptable in small towns elsewhere. And a lot of the MDs in the area have come to realize that things are going on in our clinic that they'll say to their patients, you are looking at serious steroids, or you are looking at having to have infusions for your lupus, or you are looking at having to have serious rounds of antibiotics. I'm going to prescribe them next week. I give you seven days, go see these people, see what happens. And we make enough changes for these people. If you understand dosage and correct diagnosis and the understanding of the Shangzhongxia, upper, middle, lower herbs of the Shandong Bansao and how to massage upper to lower, lower to upper, et cetera, 
we're getting, I mean, it's not like we're treating, treating everybody. I mean, I, I try so hard to be a low level doctor. If I can get six out of 10 better, I'm thrilled when it comes to what's going on out there. But we're making a big enough difference that we are being given a seven to 21 day license for a lot of patients who are looking at really nasty medicines or procedures. Uh, and the doctors are saying, give these people a try. We do not understand what's going on, but people keep coming back and not needing it. So go find out. And, and this is great. They're getting a seven to 21 day license and it should work within that period of time, not six months. Oh, well, yes, exactly. And the biggest thing that I try and tell people, because it breaks my heart when someone comes in and they say, oh, I've been trying Chinese medicine for two years for my back. And I think, ow, you know, I mean, if that was my mechanic and my car wasn't better in two years, I'd have fired that mechanic a long time ago. And what I say to people is that when they come to our clinic, we expect a tangible shift very quickly. And then if it hasn't shifted, we expect to have a conversation on how to change what we do to shift. And I'll tell them that I can't make you 100% better tomorrow. But what I can say is in 7 to 21 days, it's like taking a long hike. At any moment, you should turn around and see how far you've come. There is no way for us to have six months of no progress. And then on six months and one day, you're suddenly cured. That's not how medicine works. And so if I'm pulling you back from a very deep hole, you should notice dramatic difference very quickly. And then we have the slog of getting you all the way out of the hole. But along the way, at any given moment, at day seven, at 14, at 21, we should see such a tangible, obvious difference that it merits continuing, that it merits you spending money on something that's not covered by insurance. It merits you taking the time to come in here. It merits the time cooking herbs. Uh, and that's what the doctors in our area have come to say is like, listen, we see a change. I give you more days. We don't see a change. This is dangerous. Do that. And I, you know, one of the best things about having worked with that old generation of people who were all practicing in the Republic of China before communism and socialism came is that if you badmouthed, the young Chinese would badmouth Western medicine. Ah, you know, toe, 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 toe. You know, it's like hey, the head hurts, treat the head, the foot. And they'd say, don't you dare. Western medicine doctors used to be great. And all of the old doctors I met, and I met, I studied with just a few, but I met pretty much every last surviving famous doctor in the 80s and 90s. And all of them had tremendous respect for the old Western medicine doctors when they were kids, because these are people who could diagnose by palpation, by listening, by looking. They were making formulations for you. And they said, don't you blame Western medicine. Western medicine is just like Chinese medicine. It's changed. What the old people were doing is fantastic. What they're doing now, looking at paper and not even looking up at you, that's wrong. And that freedom of being like, oh, wait a minute, Western medicine is great. Chinese medicine is great. It's just, do you happen to have a great practitioner in front of you or not? Yeah. Do you understand your medicine? And are you working at the place where a person needs to be met and worked with? So, yeah, I mean, it's very easy for us to go, oh, yeah, how can you tell, you know, the good level doctor? Well, you know, you got a headache, you don't treat the head. Well, sometimes you do. If someone comes <laughs> in. If someone comes in and they've got headaches, well, I mean, they might have some emotional and spiritual, whatever spiritual means. That's, mm -hmm. that's such a slippery slope. I don't even know where to go with it. But if someone has emotional issues, okay, fine. That's a, that's a piece of the problem. But if they came in because their knees hurt, how about we get the knees feeling better? Amen, brother. I just, 
It is so tough when I'm told that someone has seen someone and they said, well, you know, they, my practitioner told me my pulses are better. I was like, well, how do you feel? I feel the same. Well, then your pulses weren't better. <laughs> the pulses, when the books talk about pulses better and the patient doesn't feel any different, 24 hours later, the patient feels different. There's no like the pulses feel better and six months later, you get better. That, that's not how this medicine ever worked. All of the old books are talking about acute medicine and shifts that happen quickly. Uh, and um, you know, I, I've already translated uh, in a video lecture, 239 lines of the Shanghan Lun, where I go through line by line, character by character, explaining absolutely everything of the original. And then I also translate Cheng Wuji's, uh, Chen, um, Chen Shenwu's original commentary, the first person to comment on the Shanghan Lun in the Yuan Dynasty. And then I'll bring in some of Cheng Wuji, who was one of that Republican level doctor, Republican era doctors, who really was a tremendous Shanghan Lun scholar. And every single character I translate with an eye towards clinical application. And you just, when you read it that way and you see that, you realize that they were talking about very fast shifts. They were talking about you do this and then something changes. And, and when we grasp that and we match those lines where the line is, the patient has the exact same pulse in three places. One, they're getting better. One, they're going to die. And one, we have to change the formula because something went wrong. It's the same pulse. And so people who are like, oh, you can diagnose by pulse. Well, well, does that mean we don't read the Shanghan Lun anymore? Because the Shanghan Lun has the same pulse and the person's dying, the person's living, and the person got messed up by a doctor. Uh, and we need to understand that everything is within this breadth of context. Like you said, we have to see it at the level of, of where they are. And the biggest issue, and it, it's, I understand it's hard, but... Uh, one of the things that I talk about in the early lectures of the acupuncture programs I teach is that we wouldn't expect a professional athlete or a professional musician to do well on the pitch or in a concert hall if they weren't practicing on their own. If the only time they touched a ball... Oh, relentlessly practicing. Relentlessly practicing. And especially practicing the stuff they don't know so well. Not the stuff they love. They're not practicing the stuff they love. They don't practice the stuff that makes them feel good. They don't practice the stuff that's like, well, I like this piece. I don't like that piece. They practice the stuff that's difficult that they don't know. That's exactly it. And, you know, most practitioners today, they don't actually, the only time they practice medicine is with a patient in front of them, but they aren't spending time with the books. They aren't finding that suffer time of training. And, you know, I get it. Uh, it's a professional athlete plays a few times a week and we have to treat patients every day. Uh, I have three children. Uh, I travel all over the world teaching. I 100% know how hard it is to carve time. But I also know that if I expect to practice at a certain level of medicine, I have to be willing to give up a certain amount of my gongfu or my spare time to get to that place. And I think it's fantastic that people aren't going to work as hard as I am. And I know that there's people who are working much harder than I am. I just need to understand, I need to work to a place where I am comfortable tackling an illness, as you said, and then meet the illness at the right place. And when I get to the right place, did I practice the skills necessary? Am I in shape? Am I in shape for this? Well, when you say, am I practicing at the right place? This brings up a question that we don't have time for today, but I'd like to invite you back to another episode to talk about it, because I, I think what we, where this goes for me, 
is a look into, I mean, really a look into something that for me is very difficult to understand. I, I get more curious about it all the time. And that is the issue of Jing Qi and Shen. My suspicion is an investigation of Jing Qi and Shen and those dynamics will help us to orient into where we need to be. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm going to throw a teaser out there for whenever we Uh-oh. get back together and do that. Because uh, uh, I do a major discussion on all of this in uh, one of the modules that I teach for the tangible acupuncture for internal medicine and the Chinese body work for clinical practice is how to awaken the Yuan Qi. Mm-hmm. And the Yuan Qi is the deepest place of Qi. But before we can even get to the Yuan Qi, we have to see whether or not the illness is even in that area or what's blocking it. And so really, we have to understand that the Chinese love their numbers. We talked about that earlier. And that there's layers of disharmony of Qi. And so we have the law layer, which is everywhere in the body, countless, and it can either be deficient or in excess. And then we get into the numbers that are easier for us to grasp. So we have the 12 channels. And so an illness can be in the channel. And if we read the classics, we understand that a channel illness, it doesn't mean it's less annoying, but it's not going to be as life-threatening as an illness that's hit uh, the zong. They're very clear about that. Being struck by wind in the, in the jing is very different being struck in the zong, right? But we start with the number 12 or the 12 channels and what an illness looks like it's in there. And then we look down to seven emotions. And what does it look like if an illness is in the seven emotions? And then we have to go down to what does an illness look like if it's in the six fu or the idea of filling and emptying organs. And then we have to get to what happens if the illness is in the zang. And what does that look like? Then we hit jing chi shun or what I call the three of change. Because that, for me, Jing Qi Shen was something I talked so much about in the 90s because Daoyin, uh, I've been pigeonholed so many things over the years. In the earliest years, I was sort of the Qigong, Daoyin, Taiji guy. And then I was the Bagua and this medicine guy. And then I'm now acupuncture guy. And, who, you know, it's just so silly to realize that there's this huge breadth and everyone's just kind of aiming a flashlight on one spot, you know, like the five blind people touching the elephant. Well, you know, it's almost the nature of, 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 of human perception. It's hard not to just rely on the flashlight. It is. And you know, that's why all the religions stressed acceptance because it's hard, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's hard. And if we understand that matrix of what does an illness look like if it's in the Jing, Qi, or Shun, and what does that health look like, Jing, Qi, Shun? And then most importantly, can the Jing, Qi, and Shun function well if there's a disharmony in a different layer? And that's where it gets a lot of fun, is not, not only do we have to know where an illness is, but then we have to understand that even if we want to tackle something like Jing, Qi, Shun, if it's being harassed by the seven emotions, if it's being harassed by a zong, then that affects that transportation mechanism of the essence of three. Well, it sounds like we've got plenty to talk about. So um, those of you listening right now, we'll be bringing you more of this discussion later. Andrew, thank you so much for the time today. And uh, it's so invigorating and terrifying to be reminded that our medicine can work extremely quickly on issues that that we barely can dream about because we just don't have the background. But, but there's so much that is possible 
really appreciate the work that you're doing and and thanks for the time today. Yes, and as I said, I just hope everyone out there, I know we were supposed to talk about essences, she and spirit, and we talked about everything else instead, but to understand that I think all is great. And just to understand that we really want that inclusivity and just don't exclude us. <laughs> let us practice the medicine we do and we let you practice the medicine you do and then we cross over and the world is such a better place because Chinese medicine can be what it was, which is a full strength, full breadth medicine. And we get a chance to learn from each other, people doing things we don't know how to do yet. Oh, I'll tell you, we'll end with this quick antidote. You know, we're supposed to be like the really famous strong herb people. And we had someone coming in with lifelong, very strange allergic reaction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We treating them sort of better, not better, had periods, had their, was in Florida, got really sick, looked up an acupuncturist in the phone book, went, the lady gave her tinctures. She put some tincture under her tongue. She's never had an episode since. <laughs> How can I be arrogant about what I do when I sweated myself out with all of the knowledge, 28 years in China, and some practitioner just squirted a tincture in this person's mouth and she got better. It's a huge medicine and I can't wait to learn all of that. I just don't wanna to be told I can't do what I am able to do. Well, I look forward to talking with you more about that. Alrighty, thank you so much. All right, that's it for today's conversation. Hey, if you guys like what you're hearing here, if it's helpful to you, please tell your friends about it. Also, I'm kind of curious. I can look at the download statistics for this podcast, and I see, obviously, there's people in North America that listen to this. There's folks in Australia, Russia, Japan, China. Oh, China, imagine that, China. And I'm wondering where it is that you're listening to this podcast from. So... If you don't mind, if you're listening to this right now, pull out your phone or maybe go buy a postcard. Take a picture. Let me see where it is that you listen to Geological from. You can email it to me. The address is michael at geological.com or you could send me a postcard. Wow, postcard. That is so old school. I'd love to have that. You'll find the address over on the website. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.